Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right, yeah, I know. It's way off to exactly. So it's called it's called the Brooklyn Beef Steak, and it is all you can eat steak, all you can drink beer, and no utensils. Um, they give you bread, but I hear that you really shouldn't fill up on bread. You should just create a tower of bread. And I plan to do this. I'm gonna wow. see how much of a man I can be today, or I'll you know I get a heart attack. Well, you're sounding pretty manly. <laughs> and what you been up to in the last uh, 14 days, Mick? I'm mainly sick at the moment, so that's what I'm doing. Being not well, so that's not manly at all, really. I have a cold. That's what I'm doing. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome from a sunny London. This is Mid-Atlantic 7 with me, your host, Royfield Brown. And with me, I have Rob Monaco, historian and boyfriend from Connecticut in the US of A, and Mick Wright, writer and Renaissance man from Dublin and sometimes London, ready to discuss all things transatlantic. Gents, how are you both? Doing fine. Yep, fine, cheers. Mick, you said you said you're a real estate to go. Well, you know, I, I have a cold. I mean, we don't want to... Let's, let's pretend to the listeners that I'm, that I'm a rough, tough defender of the world rather than, you know, laid low by a cold. You've ruined it now. <laughs> the <laughs> illusion has been shattered. You know, the reality, we just, I just shared that with you. Well, now we've <laughs> shared it with a couple of thousand of our listeners. Listen, in fine British fashion, I have to ask you, what is the weather like where you are? Because I tell you what, it's sunny in London right now. It is sunny in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And what's it in Connecticut? It's lovely, actually. It's starting to become spring. Well, I tell you what, the blossom is out, the sun is blue. Well, the sun is blue, the sky is blue, the sun the sun is out. I'll tell you, it's absolutely glorious in London right now. But listen, we have a lot to get through on today's show. So let's just get on with that. And now, first off, I want to say a big uh, thank you to all, everybody that's been talking to us and about us on Twitter. And also another thank you to iTunes in the US and in the UK for again featuring uh, the show. Uh, but first, here's listener Stephen Guerrero from Buffalo, New York State, asking for clarification on the British take on the European Union. Hi, this is Steve calling from Buffalo, New York. And I really enjoyed your show about the European Union and your discussion about the European Union last week. 
But I was wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit further why some of the established countries don't want to integrate further. You did a great job in showing why new countries want to join. And I was also wondering what you guys thought about what the European Union would look like for the next generation, maybe 25 or 50 years down the road. I have to say, I'm really enjoying this show, so I hope that you keep making them, and best of luck. Thanks very much for your your message. It's really it's great to hear that you're enjoying the show. Uh, so to answer your first question, why don't established, established countries want to integrate further? Which question, it's quite broad, because obviously there's a lot of countries in the EU or potentially going to be in the EU and really most places where people are uncomfortable about integrating further it's about questions of national identity and the primacy of national parliaments so the further you go into a European Union the further we get towards a federal um, way of organising things comparable to something like the US and turning uh, from countries into states under a federal body and most people are somewhat uncomfortable with that so that's and then that sort of feeds into your next question which is how will it look in the future well most likely it will look even more a more of a federal structure with uh, the germans and the french at the center of it and then still as a more of a trade and industry union for others at the fringes certainly i can see the uk still remaining part of it as a trade negotiation reasons but not wanting to go down the federal route um, i think it's really unlikely that the uk will leave for some time and if it did I think it would have to align itself with some other power block, perhaps potentially coming closer to the US than we already are. Also, listener Liam Murray messaged us on Twitter with this call about our special show last week, which you did with listener Louise Kearns advocating Scottish independence. Here is Liam's rebuttal. My name is Liam Murray. Just wanted to leave a message to say I enjoyed the Louise Kearns interview. She was a very passionate and eloquent advocate of her case. Uh, I left you guys a message on Twitter to say that it would be nice to hear the alternative case. I thought that we've made some very strong points. Her interviewer, I think, pulled out some of the concerns that I've got. There seems to be a, a suggestion from the Yes camp. When anybody raises any fears or, or apprehensions, there's a suggestion that this is actually quite a sort of dry, bureaucratic choice things will be much the same post-independence um, and then when that's advanced as a, a reason to perhaps be doubtful about doing it suddenly the case becomes one where we can radically change um, our country and our way forward and I think that tension between the two is certainly why I find myself in the no camp uh, because it can't be both um, I also think we don't have nationalist movements often arise out of some kind of cultural oppression or you know, real um, Sort of marginalisation of certain cultures, and that's certainly not the case in terms of Scottish culture in the UK. So I think there is a, a, a powerful case to be made for no loving the show, guys, um, and glad I stumbled across it today. So thank you very much. We will be doing another special listener show next week with Liam to give him his right to reply so look out for that show next Friday remember you can message us via our site midatlanticshow.com to leave a voicemail but now let's get on with the show Connecticut is raising its minimum wage to $10.10 an hour making it the first state to adopt the level the president is seeking nationally. Connecticut is among at least 34 states that are considering whether to increase the minimum wage. President Obama's effort to raise the $7.25 federal minimum wage for the first time since 2009 is stalled amid, amid a Republican opposition. <clears throat> so it's interesting to watch Connecticut say, okay, we're gonna go ahead and do this. 
with Mr. Monaco's Connecticut becoming the first state to pass $10.10 as the state's minimum wage, will the push for a national minimum wage be Obama's most tangible legacy after the ACA? Rob, over to you. No. <laughs> I just hey, give you a minimum wage. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm learning from you. I'm giving him a minimum wage answer right there. I'll tell you what. Yeah. Um. No, absolutely not. And I mean, listen, it's great that they are doing this. I think it's far too little. This is, it is very expensive to live in this state. And I've certainly worked minimum wage jobs in this state. And the only way I could afford to was to live at home. And it's ridiculous. These arguments, uh, you know, for pushing a Obama to, you know, as this legacy thing, it's not going to happen. I mean, the fact that so many people are reliant on this in the first place, though, it's still not going to happen because the people making the counter arguments are far too loud and far too powerful. Can America be proud that some somewhat over 3 million working Americans earn a minimum wage or less, Mick? How can um, America combat wage inequality and the widening gap between rich and poor if it doesn't address the low wages which many of its workers face? Well, I'm kind of cautious to point the finger because we're not doing an incredibly great job in the UK of, uh, of, of ensuring that people have, you know, because we have a minimum wage, but there's a distant question of the living wage and the living wage and the minimum wage aren't, you know, are not necessarily the same thing. Can they be proud of it? No, but then I, I think pretty much no modern capitalist democracy can be proud of the situation because almost every country's got a problem with, uh, you know, growing inequality. Yeah, I mean, and Royfield, I mean, if you think about it, you've got a lot of people in this country that are, that are really pushing for a pure capitalism approach that, you know, if the free market says fry cooks should make five bucks an hour, then that's the way it should be. And the government stepping in to say that, you know, no, 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 you have to pay them a certain amount more. Well, that's an- antithetical to this whole concept of pure capitalism. But then why as a taxpayer am I supposed to subsidize this worker? Why am I having to cover for Medicaid and food stamps and all sorts of social welfare programs when that business won't pay their workers more? I think that's unfair. Exactly. You know, it is incredibly unfair. And I suppose also the counter argument to to our instinctive position, we think there should be a minimum wage, is the fact that I suppose if workers at the bottom of the kind of wage market ask for an increase and are given an increase, then it just causes a wage spiral. Have we had any evidence, Mick, since we brought in our minimum wage in in the Tony Blair government that wages have spiralled out of control because people at the bottom have got that little bit more? Not so far as I know. It remains a contentious issue. I know, you know, the government has done a lot of reports on on the issue and it doesn't seem to have a huge difference in the number of people in employment. I think the thing that tends to happen is that you get people doing things like zero hours contracts, which companies will always find a way to dodge around having to pay workers a fair wage. <laughs> and it is a problem. But having a minimum wage is one of the things that the, uh, bringing the minimum wage is one of the things that the Blair government could be quite proud of. Absolutely. Rob, uh, over to you. The last three presidents have all increased the minimum wage in the States. Why is it that now this issue is such a polarizing one and that Republicans seem to be dead against it? Because I think he's running out of ideas to kind of solidify his legacy at this point. I mean, we're, we're really kind of, it's it's a little too late, I think, to make his the left base 
sort of of his, you know, his little supporters happy. You know, I know that, you know, he tried it with the Lily Ledbetter Act with the equal pay for women. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's ridiculous that you could hear people argue against this stuff, but there it is. And I think in all of the concessions he's done over the, you know, the six years, everything he's tried to do to reach out to the right, I think he's starting to wake up to the fact that they're never going to be happy with whatever he does. So why not just do what your base will be happy hearing? But it, it probably isn't going to work, though. And, and look, I mean, we talked about it last time with the with the Republicans taking over the Senate in, in the fall. I think he's it's too late at this point. Just on that point, is it actually too late? Looking at some of the polls, like the Democrat is running up in Alaska, it seems to be tightening. Could we actually be seeing, and I'm going to throw this open to you, Mick, could we actually be seeing a bit of a resurgence, a bounce back from Obama? Have we got to rock bottom with these in terms of the opinion polls? And if the Democrats can turn the narrative around on the minimum wage and wealth inequality, might they have a fighting chance um, come the autumn? Uh, no. <laughs> because I think that uh, he is not as ruthless as the other side. I think the other side are, are, are really very ruthless, and I, I, I almost feel like the Democrats just don't have to have it have it in them to fight back as hard as they need to. Now, I've written not many notes about this at all, Mick, about UK-Irish relations, and I'm, and this is your time to shine, if ever, with this topic, all right? right. So I'm just going to launch into it. <laughs> The Irish President Michael D. Higgins has been welcomed to the UK by the royal family on the first state visit by an Irish head of state. It's another milestone in the thaw in relations between the two countries following decades of tension over Northern Ireland. The President was greeted by Queen Elizabeth at Windsor Castle. It comes three years after a visit by the Queen to the Irish Republic, the first by a British monarch since Dublin gained independence from London in 1921. First off, we need to thank our followers on Twitter who chose the following topic on Friday when I admitted that I was at a loss at what to cover. So special thanks go out to the Steve Byrne who suggested we look at UK-Irish relations and an honourable mention needs to go out to Liam Murray who went on to discuss this with Steve also on the Twitters. With the state visit of President Higgins of Ireland to Britain, is the era of the Troubles truly behind us? And what does this first state visit say about Anglo-Irish relations? Mr Wright, you're sat in Dublin. Uh, A phrase that that really was pleasing the BBC commentators on this is that there will be no more firsts. And what they meant was, you know, uh, it was that last year, sorry, 2011, we had the the first sort of state visit by a reigning British monarch to Ireland. And now we've had the reciprocal thing from President Higgins. And there's a sense that the uh, relations between Ireland and the UK have become kind of normalized but i think long as we have people who have in their living memory uh family members who have been affected by by terrorism and by the ramifications of the troubles then irish anglo-irish relations will always come with a certain amount of a frisson to them so i think that's where we are with it you know the governments get on fine irish irish and english people on a, on a kind of day-to-day level get on fine but there are obviously still echoes of uh, the more difficult troublesome times to to deal with and, and we'll be dealing with them again for, for some time to come i'd say i'm kind of mindful of the fact that the state visit of the president of ireland probably didn't make the news over in the u.s and also, I'm mindful 
especially after what Steve Byrne said on Twitter, that it appears that to the wider world, when discussing Ireland and Britain, the only way to really kind of couch that relationship is through the troubles so i apologize to everybody but to our american friend over there could you give us a sense of the american perspective of britain and ireland and its relationship please i mean i'd be i i've taught the geography before to my classes and and i'm i mean most of them were under the impression that they're there's one Ireland. It's just the island is Ireland, and that's also the country. So I, I think you still have people wearing orange on St. Patrick's Day and not realizing how bad that is. Personally, the only thing that I knew about President Higgins, a radio program that had been passed around on Facebook, that uh, he was giving some response to a, a Tea Party advocate. It, it was a brilliant response. The guy sounded incredibly articulate and, and, and very, very passionate about social stuff here and there people are well aware the people who grew up in you know you know in the 80s and the, in the 70s and then they know with the ira and stuff like that um i i don't think people realize that there's still lingering legitimate bad blood though um that it's going to take a while to get over it, it really really is i must admit i'm actually surprised how quickly we seem to have forgotten on a kind of practical level. I remember in the mid 90s, I worked for all of three days um, in Canary Wharf and my I didn't get my paycheck because the IRA blew up the bank, which was oh, issuing, issuing, issuing the check. And at that point, not say you worried on a personal level, but those things were a concern. You know, you'd go into the city of London and there were police, uh, policemen at kind of barriers and stuff and I think things have normalised actually incredibly quickly. Mick, could you give us a sense of how the Irish media reported the President's visit? Well, this is a funny one because I, I, I uh, still consume very much more of uh, more UK media because the Irish media is um, can feel quite parochial sometimes but I think, you know, broadly what I saw is that they're very, they were very proud to see, you know, President Higgins going over there representing the country well uh, he's a he's a popular president i mean perhaps not quite as uh, popular as, as as mary who came before him but is seen as a good guy and uh, i think they were just very pleased to see that i mean the british press were very very interested in the fact that martin mcginnis was at the palace and shaking hands with the queen but uh here not 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 so much of a of a big issue there did that play out at Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So with any of the coverage that you saw, Rob, of the state visit, that here was this ex-terrorist mastermind shaking hands with our lovely queen i mean i think that there's always going to be you know i think from the british perspective that it's like you know you hear you've got you know this this guy coming up there and you know but this is the queen we're talking about you know that she has to kind of do this as the head of state but there really isn't this strong feeling one way or the other though over here and and i think that's because the 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 days of of you know the Irish terrorism have given way to to the more staunch images of, of Islamic terrorism, and that, that I think people have forgotten that there are white Europeans committing terrorism. That it's a distant memory. We'd rather much look at people who are, you know, distinct from us. Yeah, it doesn't sort of register. We just see a little nice guy. You know, he's got his little white hair. He's a little short guy in a suit, and oh, it's so charming. It's adorable. You know, it's plus you know, let, it was never that difficult for members of Sinn Fein to come in and out of the US, even during troubles. Yeah, well, there, yeah, there you go. You know, Boston political establishment. Mm, mm. On another note, kind of, kind of related. Does the fact that our head of state that she can sit down with somebody who would admit that he did planned terrorist attacks and obviously we're talking about martin mcginnis here not not president higgins does that say something about our steadfast maturity that we can do that because i can't imagine an american president actually (laughs) sitting down you know some 15 years after a conflict is over and shaking hands and greeting um a terrorist did you see the did you see the uproar when he shook hands with uh raul castro i mean no it's not gonna happen no you're totally right (laughs) and raul castro is not really a terrorist i mean so yeah no, it's not oh. going to happen here. He's not even not really a terrorist. He's not, he's not even not. He's not a terrorist. Period. Yes. Let me let me rephrase. But you, you don't know. You, but then, because it's, it, it's very hard to make those comparisons anyway. It's, it's a it's a fairly unique historical you know set of historical circumstances really. We see much more somber today. I think I think it's we're. Not, it's not as robustious as normal. Uh, allergies, maybe. Let's yeah. just let, let's just get right. This will we'll get rambunctious now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Court sees image of Riva Steemkamp's head after Oscar Pistorius shot her. It exploded. Am I right? That's correct, what I did. You know that the same happened to Riva's head. It exploded. Have a look. I'm going to show you, Mr. Pistorius. It had the exact same effect, the bullet that went into her head. My lady, I was there that night. I... That's it. Have a look there, mister. I know you don't want to because you don't want to take responsibility, but it's time that you look at it. Take responsibility for what you've done, Mr. Pistorius. Well, lady, I've taken responsibility by me waiting and not wanting to live my life, but waiting for my time on this stand to tell my story for the respect of Riva and for myself. I've taken responsibility, but I will not look at a picture where I'm tormented by what I saw and felt that night. As I picked Riva up, my fingers touched her head. I remember. I don't have to look at a picture. I was there. 
Away from the gruesome death of Reva Steenkamp, the Oscar Pistorius trial has shone light on the jewelryless and truly combative nature of the South African legal system. Are there any lessons the US and the UK can learn from it? Let's start with you, Mr. Wright. Um, are there any lessons we can learn? I'm not quite sure. I mean, uh, we we have some cases which which are tried without juries. Have been doing so since 2010. Some some highly complex major uh, criminal cases are, are done without juries. But uh, no, no, the the, the, uh, the case it's been a very it's been very interesting to watch. But I think a lot of people in South Africa would probably wish they did have jury trials. It, and that's a kind of a, a throwback to a previous time, you know, to a time under the apartheid system. Where jury trials were not going to work out well. Rob, many people say around the world, people who come from countries that aren't steeped in kind of British common law history, like obviously South Africa, the United States, Canada, Australia, even Jamaica even, they say things like trial by juries, amateur justice. When one looks at the US system, it's easy to really agree with that. Are there any moves really to look at actually how the court system, the jury system actually works in the US, especially when you have the the case of Trayvon Martin and, and George Zimmerman? as an example. The whole purpose is that it sounds great on paper. It's it's a trial, it's a jury of your peers. Well, who are my peers? If 12 people enter a room, they have no idea what's happened. They, I don't know what their educational background is, their their family life, their, their beliefs, their opinions. Who's to say that they are, if I'm on trial, they're my peers. But at the same time, having a judge, uh, uh, almost the supreme arbiter, and her two associates decide the fate. I, I think it's a little intimidating, um, and, it, and it smells too much like what we fought against, that, you know, one person is deciding our destiny. In that essence, juries sound good. And, it, and it's something that as citizens we all have to participate in. But that said, I would I would cause a stink. I, I'd probably stand up and start screaming about how nobody's my peer because you know I'm an I'm a jerk. But <laughs> Mick, when when we look at the kind of the optics of this case, it does it does feel very kind of post apartheid with this not only black judge but female black judge. Do you think that? the South African legal system, the judge and the the two lawyers, are they coming out of this well? Uh, Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, um, the lawyers are are both very impressive, very different characters. Um, As a demonstration of um, cross-examination and the ability to tell a story in court, it's very impressive. I think the defence probably has a much harder job, really, uh, than the prosecution, because, frankly, we know he did shoot her. The, the, The question mulled over is, is whether his his story that he mistook her for an intruder has any any value to it and there are certainly some pretty large holes in that defense rob looking at u.s justice and specifically with celebrity cases it's hard not to come to the conclusion that money buys you a great defense and 
and you specifically you look at this case the the, the prosecution and the defense seem to be pretty much evenly matched is there a real sense in the american legal system that actually prosecutors generally aren't that good but defense lawyers are because um it's top dollar oh yeah and i mean and, but you know you going back to you know you think about johnny cochran and what he inspired i mean you know even a character on seinfeld that yes the defense lawyers are definitely much much more flashy and you know you can afford them fantastic but i mean i, I you know i read a quote online that south africa was saying that you know it's it's lamentable that the corruption that you know if you have money you can afford a better lawyer well that's everywhere though for his stuff i think what surprises me about the south african uh, system and especially this case is that the prosecutors are flat out going up to him and saying okay so you know so tell me what happened and okay you got the gun and did you do it did you do it and he's like, I, 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 you, you, we're sitting there, you're like, you're leading the witness. But he gets right up in front of him and basically flat out asks him, did you do it? It's very compelling. It's very exciting. But oh, my God, that would never work here. Yeah, the judge did have to warn the uh, the, the, the prosecuting counsel that uh, he can't co- keep calling Pistorius a liar. Um, <laughs> But he's correct, isn't he? Um, I, 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 I still think he could potentially get off. Well, you know, I don't think he should, but I think he potentially could. OK, listen, I, I really didn't want to get into a whole kind of diddy or didn't he kind of do it? Is he, is he culpable? Is he guilty type of thing? But here we are. Mick has given us his perspective. What about you, Rob? Oh, he's a celebrity. He'll walk on on his stubs <laughs> or on, on his blade. On a, yeah. All right, yeah, on his blades. He'll he'll race out of there. No. I think maybe maybe he'll get the culpable charge, but I, no, come on. Difficult to see him having any kind of feasible career following it, though. I mean, oh, you know, give it ten years, he'll write a book. It'll be fine. If I did it. <laughs> Yeah, well, the OJ case, the OJ case is still, you know, that's why we came back to that with the Johnny Cochran thing. It's very difficult not to look back and think, you know, there's a man who was, uh, who has now pretty much admitted that he 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 murdered a woman. It it tends to be as well that um, famous men who murder women tend to get away with it. Mm. Another really good end. Let's get on to our takeaways of the week. Oh, just just before I go on to that, did you guys actually listen to the uh, Louise Kearns? show that I did yeah I looked to it it was good it's on, it's on, my, it's on my playlist <laughs> so no then <laughs> well, I have a long train ride today I'll, I'll, I'll check it out then cool I don't think it's fair really to expect Rob to be super jazzed on the issue of Scottish independence (laughs) let's be you know let's be realistic (laughs) what do you mean he's a historian it's of historic importance that the union of 1707 could well be over come what this time next year yes but I'm an American primarily and if it doesn't affect me right now as an American I could you know it's just it's very difficult to care it's it's really is Mm. (laughs) so you you sound like an american uh circa 1939 oh it doesn't these germans going into poland alex salmon's gonna march into the sudetenland (laughs) who even knows where that is takeaways of the week why don't you start us off mr monaco uh my takeaway of the week is that it is the 40th anniversary of dungeons and dragons and specifically right, they nerd were... yeah that, that's yeah all right let's right, 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 get that what's out your there. takeaway wait wait wait, wait. there's something Mick. really cool about that <laughs> no go on then rob go on <laughs> 
No, it's, they're also talking about it's also the 30th anniversary of a massive wave of of morality sort of crusades against it that All kids. Right, would... uh, Mick, uh, over to you. Oh, you guys suck. No, no, go oh. on, go on, Rob, go on. I, 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 you did get me. So whatever. Massive, it... massive morality. Go on. Yeah, you and got me you know, have to strap on my plus five armor of I don't care. So <laughs> no, no, there was a whole wave of problems in the U.S. with suicides and and you know Satanism and and it was all linked to the games. But I mean, here we are, thirty years later, and we're telling kids that like you know, um, why don't you go outside and play or or you know what, anything you can do to get off the computer. <laughs> sure, sure, be your be your or beer elf it's good stuff so yeah i thumb my nose at you i support rob in his in his uh pick there because my pick is that uh game of thrones back on telly yay uh so you know in that rich history of fantasy and i wanted to recommend boars gore and swords which is game of thrones podcast which is very funny and uh yeah so if you if you enjoy our podcast which has been very serious this week maybe listen to uh, boars gore and swords if you are um watching game of thrones they do good recaps and uh, they're very funny with it good good um now my takeaway of the week is just the compelling narrative that is sport really um last sunday i saw uh the bahrain grand prix where lewis hamilton in a slower car fended off the attacks from nico rosberg for the last 15 laps when they're going at it hammer and tongs and one car would get in front of another and then he would kind of come back at him and then just before we started to record this show liverpool and manchester city have just played each other and just had this kind of thrilling two three two victory for liverpool and kind of what i say to people all the time is that when you follow sport it's a much more realistic metaphor and kind of allegory for life than ever drama is. So I saw Captain America last week because I'm a superhero nerd. And of course, uh, at the end of... Yes, I am a nerd too. Um, At the end of that uh, film, of course, Captain America, Black Widow, Nick Fury, et al. have done the right thing and the baddies have been vanquished. But when you look at the, the narrative that sport tells us, it's that... You can substitute teams uh, for people, for characters. And so you have Manchester United, who are like this toppled fallen giant now in English football. Or you have Ferrari in Formula One, and they're the grandee marquee team. And then this narrative is never-ending and actually is much more compelling, really, than any drama which needs to be neatly folded up and written by the end of the book or by, by the end of the film. So, really, that is my takeaway of, this, of the week. Is that but doesn't sport tell, us that, uh, sport tell us that he who spends the most money does, well, does the best in the end? <laughs> no, because I, I tell you what, I... I think it does now. It, it didn't used to. When you could have a Brian Clough, Nottingham Forest, you know, uh, uh, winning the league and, and winning the European Cup, but uh, does it now? Not really. Well, it, it depends on what level of sport you're looking at. There is an amazingly compelling story going on at the end. Um, of the professional game in the English League which is the story of Wimbledon a team which I have more than just a passing liking for and for our American listeners a a quick kind of resume on the structure of of English football you any team is in the pyramid of English football i.e. if I decide to create a team with, with Mick tomorrow and with nine other guys we can play on a park field and as we get better we go into different leagues and in 30 years time our team of which Mick and I wouldn't be playing for anymore because we'd be way too old 
could actually be in the Premier League playing against Manchester United. And that doesn't happen in North American sport. But what the story of Wimbledon is absolutely the most romantic of all ideals. So here was this team that went out of business some, what, 12 years ago. And then the supporters of this professional team, when it went out of business because they had to relocate, said, we're going to go down the park and anyone who wants to play for our new team, which we're going to call Wimbledon, can join. And then seven years after that, it went through league after league and now is back in the professional uh, in professional English uh, football structure. So I agree with you that at its summit, we have billionaire Bahraini owners of Manchester City or millionaire, the millionaire Glazers who are who own Manchester United, etc. But you don't have to look too far to still see those true stories of, you know, the common man and just regular folk getting together and, and doing great things under the banner of football and sport. I'm going to let you get away with that because it's a nice ending. But I think there's, I think that's one for us to discuss another day because I think that's a, <laughs> there's something of a... It's something of uh, picking up on the exceptions there, Monday. <laughs> it's been somewhat of a much more subdued mid-Atlantic number seven. Um, please get hold of us on Twitter where we are at mid-Atlantic show. You can go onto our site, which is mid-Atlantic show.com, put my teeth in, and you can leave us a voicemail message. If you agree or disagree with anything that the guys have said today, please go onto our website and post your views. Mick, if somebody wants to get hold of you, how can they do that? At Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter is the best way. And you, Mr. Monica, over in Connecticut. I'm at Podcast History, or you can find me on iTunes, Podcast History of Our World. And you can follow me if you're suitably inclined, also on Twitter, where I'm at Royfields, which is spelled R O I F I E L D. Thank you for iTunes for all the love it's given us at the moment. Thank you to our now um, burgeoning band of loyal listeners, uh, sorry, uh, followers, sorry, on Twitter. It's really good that you are reaching out to us and actually even talking amongst yourself. See you all again in 14 days' time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.